I'm Angelique Roche, and this is Marvel's Voices. Actually, the first time I met Evan, which is interesting because I, I, I'd known of Evan, uh, but I'd never met him, right? It was kind of like this digital understanding of who Evan Narciss is within the comic book world. And I was at San Diego Comic-Con, first San Diego Comic-Con ever. And I'm walking, and if you've ever been to San Diego Comic-Con, it is a little overwhelming. And I think it's like the second or third day, and I'm walking, and I'm behind the Marvel booth, and I hear someone go, Angelique! And I was like, no one knows me. Why is anyone calling my name? This is very random. And I see this guy, this gray haircut, just kind of chilling, mad cool, like a literally a piece of calm in a sea of chaos. And it's Evan Narciss. And he was so polite and so amazing and so sweet. And he said he just wanted to introduce himself to me. And I think that in and of itself really speaks volumes for who Evan is, not just as a writer and a comic book fan, but just as a human being. And I think that reflects on the fact that the night I got to interview Evan, uh, he came straight from the airport, luggage in hand, on his way to dinner, and made time to sit down and talk to me for Marvel's voices because he is such an amazing storyteller, but also because we asked. So those of you who are not familiar with Evan Narciss and his work as a cultural journalist, as a nerd, as a comic book lover, he is also the author of Rise of the Black Panther, which was a six-issue miniseries, which you should definitely check out. It really goes into, again, this tapestry of the legacy of the Black Panther and what it stands for. And it is currently available on trade paperback in your local comic book store. This is Evan Narcissus' story. Cleveland clubs, and you've been over at Sci-Fi, and they ask you all these, you know, the same questions all the time. But one of the things that I think is so profound is the lines that exist between your answers. When I hear you talk about the tapestry of creating Rise of the Black Panther, which in one of your answers, I just I loved it because you were so reverent and uh, diplomatic uh, to what is something that a lot of comic book fans and now increasingly 80 years into Marvel, a lot of comic book writers are dealing with, which is that every time a new writer gets their hands on a character and that's whether the character is in a solo series or an ensemble or it's just like a one-off that character is nine times out of ten forever changed yeah um something about their voice something about their mannerisms um an artist an artist or a colorist is going to shift um the square of their jaw yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah. and to be able to piece together this tapestry that's now so important. Yeah. Like, it's. It, it, did um, you know how big it was going to be? I mean, one thing I can say is that, you know, having loved T'Challa and the Black Panther mythos my entire life, um, I knew, like, how deep it went and how um, powerful, metaphorically, it could be, right? Um, 
And I knew that I wasn't alone. I knew that there were like hundreds, thousands, millions of people like me who were like, yo, the, the, the building blocks of, of, of the Black Panther mythos are amazing and flexible. And so I knew you could take it to a bunch of different directions. And I also know, knew that a bunch of writers who preceded me could take it to different directions, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I knew there was flexibility there. Um, and, you know, like, even when ta started his run, I was like, oh, see? And he's doing something different, too. Um, yet, and still, it makes sense with what comes before it, right? Um, and I think that's the big challenge when you're writing superhero comics. Um, the baton is always being passed. Sometimes it gets dropped. Sometimes it gets picked up. Sometimes it gets, it gets thrown into It has a gotten swamp. dropped a lot with uh, Black Panther. Um, yeah. Um, Not in a bad way, but like there's, there have been a lot of places where stories have just... Petered out. They haven't added to the mythos, you know, or, you know, they cancel other things out. You know, this, this is superhero comics. There's always going to be contradictions, right? But the fun of writing Rise of the Black Panther was trying to make the contradictions seem less like contradictions, trying to make, trying to show some connective tissue where we never thought there might be any in the first place, different attitudes within Wakanda and outside of Wakanda. Um, and, you know, the core of the story is is the moment where, that we never ever saw in the comics before, which is like, yo, when did the world actually learn about this place? We, mm-hmm. we, we saw superheroes learn about this place, and we then we saw... Uh, uh, a, the general public acting like they've known about Wakanda for X amount of years. Um, but when was the actual moment? So that was a question I wanted to answer. And, you know, Tanasi was there all along. Um, we were just, just kind of go back and forth about, you know, what the modern day conception of, of T'Challa is, like who he is right now. Um, and again, how to fold in all these different understandings from previous creators um, in, into into a co- cohesive story. Which I think is really interesting because the beauty of comics is that each storyteller brings their experience. Yeah. And you've said it before, and I think, I think I went back and I really thought about it, is that you being of Haitian descent, like this idea of a island that has rejected colonialism that is extremely isolated, very proud, and was ahead of its time in fighting for its freedom and winning. Yeah. Um, although that is a little different than Wakanda. Wakanda's never been colonized. Sure. Uh, for those out there who are keeping notes. Uh, but, you know, I think it's such a beautiful... It's such a beautiful example of how storytellers can strengthen a legacy of a character. I just I just knew what that voice was. Like, you know, like my memories during my childhood, um, my 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 elementary school years, my teenage years, you know, I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island. We'd have cookouts in the backyard and people come over and uh uh my my aunts, uncles, cousins would always argue about politics like always loud voices slamming the table just like so much noise you thought they were arguing but they weren't but you know their opinions were so deeply held because you know the fate of the country um tethered as it was to the politics of the united states and other uh caribbean kind of entities um was important to them so they're like yo we can't do this because this is happening or this, you know, this is what so-and-so needs to do. And this is why things are messed up. Like, uh, I, I heard that 
um, the whole time. Um, um, Haiti is not a country that is uh, resource rich, particularly. Mm. It's not an analog for Wakanda in that way. But like having a, a sense of the history, um, bringing it forward, um, understanding what it means, like on an intimate level in terms of families being separated um, um, or people losing families because of uh, political machinations. Like that's all stuff that was like one, two, three degrees away from me. Um, um, you know, my paternal grandfather, my dad's side, um, who lived in Haiti almost his entire life. But, you know, he was uh, he was a, a dancer. He he studied and taught dance. And um, he worked in one of the cultural affairs departments um, in the government in Haiti. And, you know, when the tides shifted d- during the Duvalier regime, he was kind of like out. He, wow. he uh, um, So, you know, he kind of had to figure out his own way to make money and do stuff. And, you know, like he got off easy, you know, compared to people who fled the country as political dissidents or died or stuff like that. So, you know, I knew about stuff like that. Um, And understanding the strength it can have over a person and their destiny. Yeah, very much so. So, you know, like, you know, my mom impressed upon me from a very young age how important it was for me to do well in school and whatnot. And granted, some of that is just immigrant life, right? Like, like growing up with immigrant parents. But like, you don't have no choice. No, we don't have a choice. But you know, I I, I was made to understand that like there was a legacy I was supposed to be upholding. You know, and it was a lot, a lot of pressure. She she told me probably from when I was like five years old that I was gonna have to get a scholarship uh, to go to school. Uh, so I got the scholarship. It was not easy. It wasn't fun. Um, but I got it. And, you know, so when it came time to sit down and think about how T'Challa grew up and the kind of pressures that, that, that must have been impressed upon him, the responsibility he must have felt, um, and his worldview as it related to the outside world um, and what the best way to move forward for Wakanda was, like, yeah, you know, I, I could definitely draw on personal experience to inform some of that in the comic. And I think that's really amazing. And I I love the fact that you brought in this idea of not just your parents, but this impact of extended family. Yeah. Um, Because Wakanda really is that. It really is this broad extended family. But I want to take a step back, though. While you were trying to get this scholarship, clearly you became a huge nerd. Oh, man. Look, man, I'm very proud to be a nerd. So I say this with all the love in my heart. Yeah. You were a huge nerd, which I love, right? Because being able to read your social commentary and the analysis that you give to pop culture is something that I don't think is really like people can write good articles about pop culture, but really the analysis takes so much of a larger swath of knowledge and experience um, and so much understanding of what happened in the process of creating this thing. Um, But First comic book, Barbershop, Daredevil, Doc Ock. That's a, that is, hmm, how did we, because I've had folks come in and say, oh, X-Men was my first one, or Spider-Man was my first one. Daredevil and Doc Ock, and you were hooked? Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was um, if I'm remembering correctly, that's still when Roger McKenzie was writing Daredevil. It was before Frank Miller took over. But uh, Miller did draw it, and I think Klaus Jansen was also on Inks. 
And, you know, if you know anything about that run, the way Frank Miller was drawing then and, and yeah. with uh, with Jansen on inks and it was probably Christy Scheel or maybe even Lynn Varley on colors. I don't know. But, like, the book looked uh, – it had a noirish element yeah. to it. Yeah. It was dramatic. It's very it, dark. Yeah. It was, it was dark and, and, and melodramatic and, and high tension. Like, you know, I was probably not even 10 years old at the time. Um and that stuck with me, you know, like mm-hmm. the uh, so that's, yeah, an early uh, influence in terms of how uh, how um, mature and sophisticated the storytelling in comics could be mm. in terms of its approach to, you know, psychology and personality. Like it was it was soap opera, but it was like not just like, you know, uh, uh interpersonal stuff it felt like the stakes were like ethical and larger and 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 farther reaching than other stuff i'd read before so um yeah that 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 you know and 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 probably from then on i whenever i i could find comics i would i would get them my hands on them and and, and read them and over and over again so eight nine year old evan is going in a haitian barbershop in a hate in a Haitian barbershop. Which I want to say was on Flatbush Avenue. I want to be like, how did you find time to read a barbershop? Because it's loud in barbershops in Brooklyn. My parents, either my mom or my dad, when it's time for me to get a cut, they would drop me off in that barbershop. It was basically free free babysitting. So I, I, we'd be there for hours sometimes. So you had to find something to do. Yes. There's only so many Jet magazines in the world. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, Jet magazine. Uh, Rest in peace. Yeah, for real. Um, but, yeah, that was... That was um, that era and some kind soul had left some comments in the shop. Uh, and that and was one of were. them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so does eight, nine year old Evan at that point, what did you want to be at eight, nine, ten years old? I don't remember. Probably a doctor or a lawyer, probably whatever my mom wanted me to be, which was doctor, lawyer, architect, uh, good professionals. That's a good first generation. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Direction. Um, she was a nurse. So, she, you know, she's like, you're, you're, you're going to school. You're going, there's some kind of higher education in your future. And it was just not what you wanted. Um, <laughs> so, how, I mean, mom is like, oh, so, so you're a journalist. Oh, when my, when, when it came time for me to kind of start going down that path, I was in college at NYU and I took my first. Great journalism school. Yes. And, and, and I'm getting there. Oh, um, <laughs> but uh, I took my first constitutional law course and I was like, this ain't for me. Uh, so yeah, um, I, I took a journalism class taught by Professor David Dent, who is still at NYU. If you're listening, I love you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> who uh, it was? A, it was a class called Minorities in the Media, and mm-hmm. I was just taking it to fill out some credits. But I got in the in, in in the class, and you know, kind of participated with aplomb. And he's like, "You can really write. We should get you in the program." So um, um, I took on a minor of journalism. Um, and also African-American studies, which was a new department at the time at NYU. I'm dating myself, but whatever. Uh, um, but yeah, Professor Dent was the one who was like, you should really pursue pursue journalism, journalism as a career. And um, I did that. And to, an- to go back to answer your, your question, my mom was like, you're going to be broke your entire life. Immigrant parents, like I said. Um, oh, that makes you funny, brother. My southern parents were like, acting? Yeah. Acting? And, you know, I have to say, she wasn't wrong, but 
Uh, but are you happy? Yeah, I was gonna say I've 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 every day that I've done writing or journalism as as a job, I've been happy. Yeah. I you know I have friends of mine who are who did wind up being doctors and lawyers and architects, uh, like my mom wanted, and some of them hate their jobs, some of them love their jobs. But you know, I've never hated my job. I've hated deadlines, but I've never hated my the act of writing. Show me someone that likes a deadline, <laughs> and I will show you someone who is lying. Yeah. No one likes a deadline. Yeah, I, I need a deadline, but I don't love a deadline. It it is hard, right? Like I, I've made a lot of crazy choices in my career fields um, that have landed me here. But I would say I agree. Like when you get to a point where you're like, I love this thing. Yeah. I'm here, and you know you're still doing it. So you you've gone from doing this which is not an easy field to be in because you do tech you do games you do nerd stuff you do comics yeah. um and comics people are very tough critics yes. on critics yes um i can only imagine what the best of days and the worst of days look like for you on the response to your articles um and and honestly you know even people who write about you um because now as a writer yeah you are being written about, about. yeah yeah, how does I hate to say how does that feel, but like how does that change your perspective as a writer when people are now writing articles about Evan Narciss? It, you know, it does, it hasn't changed my perspective very much. Like I expected this the minute I I, I started this career transition that I'm in the middle of, um, and you know, like more often than not, I'm gonna give a critic the benefit of the doubt because I've been on the other side of that divide. I, I'll take my lumps. People have said, you know, unkind things or very kind things about the series. And um, um, I know what it's like to do that job. I think you can do it in good faith. And unfortunately, that's something that doesn't always happen. But, you know, um, it, it does make you kind of armor up a little bit, like yeah. uh, uh, um, in terms of the different levels of critique um, that are out there. Um, some of them are harsher than others, but like like you said before, I've always tried to be fair and assume the benefit of the doubt, even when execution has not necessarily been um, to my liking. Which is interesting, right? Because now, speaking of Killmonger, you're actually working again with Michael B. Jordan, and you're moving into a new challenge in your career in this transition where you're actually doing scripted piece for Rooster Teeth. Yeah. Um, uh, so I did a little bit of work. On Genlock, which is Rooster Teeth's new animated series um, starring uh, Michael B. Jordan in the lead role of Julian Chase. Uh, it's also got Maisie Williams, Dakota Fanning, David Tennant. It's a ridiculous cast. Um, yeah, David Tennant has so much fun on that show. Um, I don't know at any point in time when David Tennant is not having fun. Even when David Tennant is playing a murderer. Oh, yeah. He is having fun doing it. Yeah. Whistle while you work. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I um, did some work um, with the team at Rooster Teeth on Genlock. And uh, season one just wrapped up. It's an amazing show. I really, really liked it. You know, it's funny. Um, I wasn't there when every bit of it was being made. So a lot of it surprised me. The way it looks, the way it moves, um, character designs. Uh, but I, I, I was really happy with some of the uh, the themes of the show in terms of yeah. what it means to kind of find yourself during a, a period of great crisis and when things around you change and your whole, your, your, your very existence changes, 
how do you stay true to who you are and be your best self? Um, and uh, I think those thematics come out really strong in the show, but it's also really fun. And I mean, the action choreography is amazing. I, I think those guys did a really great job. So um, it was a, a great, great experience. Yeah. So for for those who are writers who are at home kind of thinking through the different stages, and you know and I know these are all three very different ways of writing but have similarities. You know, what have you learned going from journalism to comic book writing and specifically also the different types of journalism that you've done? Yeah. Um, because a review is very different than just a straight reporting reporting yep. piece or an investigative reporting piece is different than a blurb. Yeah. Um, and then moving into this concept of doing this mammoth that was this six-part series because yeah. even though it was only a six-part series, there was so much you had to kind of bring together. So part historian, part writer, yeah. and then now doing as fictional as you can get uh, with scripted animation. Like, what have you seen has been um, the differences or the challenges? Um, you know, a lot of it is using the same tools in different ways. Like, I... I, I I tend to think of ideas in a physical way, which is like, you know, you have an idea for the core part of a story arc and um, let's call it like, it's like a gem, right? You know, mm-hmm. and it has different facets. You turn it one way and the light reflects one way. You turn it another way and it's a different, you know, element of the spectrum and like, you keep turning it and find things that are interesting and can transition to one another. Um, and and how I got there is like, you know, journalism has you interrogating ideas and assumptions, right? Like the thing, the circumstances and the context powering certain political beliefs or individual actions, like there are always layers to those narratives, right? Um, and we're talking about real life. So if we know that's the case in real life, we know it can be the the case in fictional life as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, like asking a good follow-up question in an interview is often more important than asking the leading question, right? Because, you know, you'll have a person thinking that they've answered the question already and they're going to move on and be like, no, uh, well, but what about this part or that, that part? And, um, you know, that's kind of straight reporting, you know, but also – when it comes to cultural criticism, writing a movie review or talking about a certain work of art's place in a continuum of creativity, like, it's the same thing. What was different writing a Daredevil comic in 1986 versus writing one in, in 2019? Um, you know, uh, so again, like, analysis, interrogation, um, um those are things that I, I think I, I've bought to every kind of writing that I'm I'm doing. At least I try to. The thing that is difficult with comics in particular is thinking visually. You know, I talk about thinking about an idea visually, but like it's different when you're like, okay, you've got to stage direct a, a cast of characters in a way that's interesting and exciting. You've got to excite the artist, which is something I stole from Kieran Gillen, um, a writer who I love, Wicked and Divine, uh, Marvel's Darth Vader series, a bunch of other stuff. Um, 
he says you have to excite the artist because if you don't do that, then your job, you're, 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 you may as well not even do it. You know, if you're just writing to excite yourself, that's one thing. But but comics are a hybrid medium um, of words and pictures, so you've got to make sure the guy making the pictures or the guys, the gals, the people um, are are excited to do it. Um, and that part was really hard for me. It's something. It's, that's something that Tanahasi and I had talked a lot about. Because I remember when he was starting writing Black Panther, he's like, "Yeah, thinking visually is the hardest part of this job." He's like, "I can, I can think, I can reckon with the history and the notion of a fictional history, um, and and how that gets carried into the future. Can reckon with the characters, but like the, thinking about, okay, how do I make this sound cool enough on the page so that it looks cool, cool enough when drawn?" Um, that that was difficult, and that nothing I'd done before really prepared that for, prepared me for that. Like you can you can describe a scene when you're writing a piece of journalism, like it happened during a sunny day, and there are people milling about in the streets. That's one thing, but like doing it in a specific directed way yeah. so that a visual artist can interpret it in a in um in a way that is unique and appealing is is a, a real skill. Yeah, and I think you've. I've, I mean, I'm paraphrasing what you've said, which is frame, freeze, and fill. Yeah, um, just yeah. the concept of um, because that's that is what makes comics so unique, yep. and it is also what makes people who read comics so unique because it. It's a different kind of literacy, right? It, it's it's it sounds a little bit like. We're putting comics reading on a pedestal, and I don't want to come off that way, but it is a very different kind of literacy. Like, you know, knowing where where to to move your eye and which word balloon to read in which order. Like, you know, people who are new to comics always tell me it's confusing. I don't know. Like, you know, you kind of have to take in the whole page at first, a big snapshot, then zoom in, and then zoom in some more. And, you know, one of the things... I'll never forget when Tanahasi first started to get pages in for his Panther run. He's like, yo, I get color now. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Color's great. It sets mood and tone, whatever. I know what you mean. But uh, when I started to get my pages in, I was like, yo, remember when you said this? Like, I get what you were saying now because you, Stephen Patro was a colorist in Rise of the Black Panther. And you see how color can draw your eye across the page in a way that's different. And more subtle, but as important as line art can, you mm-hmm. know, as words can. So uh, you start to learn different things about the craft of comics making when you're actually doing it. I actually wrote an article about that on io9, mm-hmm. things I didn't know about comics until I started making comics. Um, and it's true. Like uh, uh, every bit of doing that series was uh, a really intense learning process. And, you know, I had great editors, um, Will Moss and Sarah Brunstadt who, um, you know, were patient. Um, but also, like, you know, when I nailed something, they let me know. And that was really, really, you know, supportive yeah. and helpful. So how, what are the five things? We're going to keep it at five because there are probably 205 things that you feel like are the key components to a T'Challa story. Um, I think, first and foremost, um the, the the nature of his station as a king, even when he's not a king, means that uh, I think the primary element is that he's a character that always reckons with the gap 
between different factions, right? Mm -hmm. Even when he took over from Matt Murdock in Hell's Kitchen, he's like, okay, this is my province now. And y'all people from outside of it want to mess with it. And I I don't do that because that's just not how I was raised. So even when he's not a king, he's like, this is this is my my principality and you may not encroach on it um, uh, without suffering consequences. Fundamental ideas of territoriality. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's one. And not necessarily like territoriality is loaded term because it 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 invokes an idea of um, isolationism. I don't think T'Challa is an isolationist. I think if you read Red of the Rise of the Black Panther, that's clear. Um, uh, his countrymen are, and that's been out of necessity. But I don't think T'Challa is an isolationist. Um, but yeah, he he when he when he is sworn to protect um, an idea or a place, um, there's always going to people be people to encroach on that. And he's, I think that's a core part of all. Uh, 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 good Black Panther stories. I mean, you take something like the two-parter that Jason Aaron wrote during Secret Invasion, see Wakanda and die. And the scrolls were like, oh, you know, we've conquered, ga- we've conquered planets and galaxies. Nah. And they're like, yeah, but you've never been here before. So you're about to find out what's up. Um, uh, so that's one. I think uh, the second part, connected to the first part, uh, is uh, an idea of the weight of legacy in history, you know? Um, I think that's that's something that always shows up in good uh, Black Panther stories. You're, you're carrying on from those who came before you, and sometimes you don't want to. Uh, um, some, sometimes you rather be like, you know what? I, I don't feel like being uh, uh, Queen Shuri, leader of the Black Panther clan. She was not really feeling uh, being Black Panther this go round it was effort. A, she was not it was a necessity um but you know there was there a relish no there wasn't um um which is very different than the first time we meet shuri yes right and this idea that she was like but yeah. i can be a better right. black panther yes yeah um um so the idea that you're carrying on a legacy that extends back centuries and if you mess it up wakanda its culture, its technology, its glory ceases to exist. So a lot of pressure. And I feel like, you know, some of some of the interesting T'Challa stories have been where he is chafed under that pressure. You know, like he was born in it, raised in it. But, um, you know, sometimes he just wanted to go out with an, a, a, an American soul singer named Monica Lynn and just, you know, uh, hang out with her family down south and not have to worry about running this whole damn country. Sometimes he just wants to chill, but you can't do that because guess what? Uh, 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 your daddy and his daddy before him and, you know, the various men and women who held the title of Black Panther did this thing and now it's your turn to do this thing. Or there's vampires in New Orleans and people need saving. Right, Whatever. Right. Whatever. Uh, cool, cool, uh, cool. That's like a vacation for him, though. So <laughs> those, those two elements, you asked me for five. What else? I think uh, T'Challa is inherently... A deeply compassionate person. That's mm. that's my favorite um, kind of characterization of the character. And I feel like even when he was at his most emotionally opaque um, and uh, Machiavellian during the Christopher Priest run, there's still a core of compassion in that guy. Like yeah. like you look at uh, there is the uh, Storm and Drong storyline which is where uh, Latveria 
Atlantis and Deviant Lemuria almost go to war um, um, over various uh, uh, um, tensions. But the thing at, 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 at the heart of it all was this kid, a, a Deviant Lemurian that was born to look human, um, and there was a scandal at the heart of who the, who the parent was, um, and, and uh, Lord Gar, who's the head of uh, Deviant Lemuria, wanted the kid back so he could kill him. And T'Challa's like, you're not killing no kids. Like, it may, not what we do. Right. It, it may thrust all these nations into war, but you're not going to kill this kid. Um, and I think, you know, he's somebody who cares about other people. Um, despite being a king, you know, he could really not give a damn. You know, he, he, he has other things to worry about. But I think um, people's feelings, their sense of justice um, and, 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 and needing somebody to fight for them, those are, those are um, strong pulls on who he is. And I think um, uh, that's what core part of the character. So that's three. I'm keeping count. You can't stop me now. No, I'm here for it. Because, I mean, I, lo- I love the last one because I think some people – would attest to that being T'Challa's biggest flaw. It's not a good quality to have if you're he a king. He has a lot of feels. And trying to be ruthless. Um, but it's it's I think it's a core part of who he is. Yeah. Um, so four. I, four is curiosity. I think he has an intense um, desire to understand the world and universe around him. Um, uh you know, part of it comes from growing up in a country with all this advanced technology, with the one of the most unique elements in the world. Um, but part of it is also like, you know, in my conception of him, he grew up inside a palace, right? Yep. You know, a very ordered, controlled existence. Um, but, you know, you're just a kid whose mom was a genius and you got some of that genius and you want to find out about the rest of the world. A world that you're told not not to engage with right so you know any kid you tell them not to do something they're gonna go do it they want to go do it so i I think he probably had deep city curiosity about everything the world outside of wakanda's borders for a long time then you grow up get ready to be king and there's people flying through the sky you know who can turn themselves on fire you know there's there's all these superpowered beings starting to show up in the marvel universe right as he's becoming so you invite them to come so you can hunt them yeah yeah you know it's it's it's, it's hands-on experimentation you i know. mean i'm just saying he was just trying to figure things out right, right and why not just invite them to get face-to-face hands-on exactly experience they can catch these claws um <laughs> um and five uh five I think, you know, this is something Tanahasi and I have liked, uh, have talked about a lot. But I think deep down, secretly, maybe not so secretly, depending on the writer and the interpretation, I think T'Challa likes being a superhero. But oh, he loves it. It is the one thing he can understand. I think he li- probably likes it being more than a king. You know, you go cool places, see cool things, do cool experiments. Um, but I think things are also a bit more black and white when you're a superhero. Oh, yeah, very much so. You have a thing. Yeah. Something is wrong. You go fix it. No council meetings. Um, <laughs> no, no, no legislation to vet. No, no factional disputes to settle. Like, you just go and, and punch a gap, bad guy in the face. So I think, you know, he really likes being a superhero. And, mm-hmm. and the other parts of his life are duty. That's probably more... Uh, passion for him. Yeah. All right. So, quick fire questions. Go. 
if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Um, man, I tend to say super speed uh, because I feel like I never have enough time. If I can get things done more quickly, there'd be more times for nap naps. I feel like there is a long conversation we're going to have about that later. Two, what is your superpower? What is my superpower? Yes. Everybody has one. <sighs> Listening. Oh, I can believe that. That actually, that works for me. Three, what is on your playlist? Um, I've been listening to a playlist. I'm obsessed with this saxophonist named Nubia Garcia. She's a British saxophonist um, who has some of the, 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 the best solos I've heard in the 21st century. Um, she's part of a group called um, Never Jazz, an all-female jazz band. She is also on... Uh, recordings by Micaiah McRaven, who's a, a Chicago-based drummer who calls himself a beat scientist. He uh, They play live jazz, and he also samples it and cuts it. So it's a, it's a great, like, best-of-both-worlds kind of uh, scenario. So she's on a lot of his albums, but I'm obsessed with her music now. So she's she's like the backbone of a, of a, of a jazz hip-hop playlist I have going right now. What was the first Marvel comic book you ever bought? Uh, the first Marvel comic book I bought um, man, it was probably a Marvel Triple Action, which was a reprint series where they would reprint old issues of the Avengers. So probably that. All right. Last question. Hit me. What does storytelling mean to you? Um, storytelling means to me that you get to take people on journeys, um, that you get to show them, uh, new understandings of things in you already, um, uh, visions of things they didn't already know, um, insight into human nature, um, the things that make us different and special, the things that make us similar and special, uh, a way of understanding the world. Mm, mm. Boom. Look at that. Thank you so many things I want to ask. Thank you so much to Evan for coming by. I am really excited that Rise of the Black Panther is out right now in trade paperback. So a whole new group of fans will be introduced to this amazing work. And, you know, make sure you're checking out another incredible show Freeform's original series, Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, is back. In season one, we met Ty and Tandy as they discovered their new superheroes. Ty, Cloak, can control the realm of darkness, and Tandy, Dagger, can shoot daggers of light from her hands. In this new season, there are bigger issues on the horizon. They'll need to embrace their powers and figure it out fast, because whether they like it or not, mayhem is coming. Tune in to watch season two of Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, Thursdays on Freeform.